0: Hey everybody, it's Jessup Warnock, the Director of Marketing at 7 Figure Flipping. Today's podcast is a presentation from last week's RIA Deep Dive with Chad King. It's about sales and how sales is not about convincing someone to sell or buy something. It's about solving a problem or giving someone a solution. It's a great presentation. If you're not attending the RIA events virtually or in person, if you're in the Nashville area, you're crazy. These things are packed with information. For more information about the RIA, join the free RIA Facebook group. That way you'll know when the events are happening. The link is in the description. All right, enough for me, here's Chad. My name is Bill Allen and I'm the leader of a group of elite house flippers and wholesalers called Seven Figure Flipping. We don't brag or show off our success, but instead let integrity and stewardship be our guide. We are dedicated to helping people unlock the freedom they desperately need. If you ask other real estate investors, they will say to keep your secrets quiet, but we believe in abundance, not scarcity. And that's why we are the elite. We are seven figure flipping. And this podcast is our playbook. I'm going to start it off with a little agenda for the call. Um, I'm going to go about 45 minutes into some just basic sales negotiation stuff. And then I'm going to leave about 10, 15 minutes at the end for some high level Q&A for the, the first 30 to 45 minutes, right? I want to talk about just basic sales when it comes to uh single family home acquisition um, and really kind of any real estate acquisition. The difference in, you know, when you go out and read a bunch of sales books is a lot of times it talks about, um, you know, going to sell something um, and that can be a little confusing because you know, majority is say 90% of sales books are about like selling a product when really what we're doing is actually buying something. So it's a little different, but we're still selling a service and we're still selling ourselves. So that's how you have to look at those books when you read them. Um, you know, it talks a lot about buyers and we're actually going to meet with sellers, but it's the same concept. If you think that we're selling a, a service here. So, um, basic understanding of, of sales. And then I'm going to talk about some advanced negotiations, um, tactics and strategies um that are going to really help you to get properties at, at deep discounts and we're going to talk a little bit about the pitfalls um, that i see a lot of uh salespeople, especially newer sales people sort of fall into um that that uh eventually lead them to getting like some you know maybes and think it overs and stuff like that um and then at the end i want to spend about 10 minutes uh before the q a on owner financing so Obviously, everybody understands kind of what's going on with the market. The Fed rates are rising. Um, we're seeing inventory start to taper off. I think this crazy, you know, 20% growth that we've seen over the past couple of years is going to start to taper with some pretty standard 5% to 8%. I don't know if we're going to see a major correction. But all that said, you guys need to understand how to structure owner finance deals. You need to understand how to leverage owner's equity in the properties in order to purchase those said properties and how it benefits them. So at the end, we're going to talk about how to lead with the benefits and how to get somebody to think that owner financing the property is their idea, which is the epitome of sales. Say a great salesperson can persuade enough to get somebody to think that your idea is actually their idea. And when your idea becomes their idea, the clothes become seamless, okay? I'm going to be, my whole intention here by hopping on, um, you know, Bill asked me to fill in for this deep dive and, um, you know, I, I'm going to be, if, if I can just give you guys one nugget, you know, after this 45 minutes or an hour of, of talking, if, if you guys can just take one nugget and go and implement it into your sales process, then I've done my job. So, um, you know, and, and, and the other thing too, is be authentic to yourself. And when you're in a, in a sales conversation or in a negotiation, buying a property, you know, just don't try and sound like anybody else, try and sound like you, but understand that the tactics and the strategies of a, of a sales process so that you can understand, you know, how to effectively get to close deals. Cool. So let me put my phone on. Do not disturb. Basic sales is two things. All of sales. I can summarize into two, two, two d- distinct buckets can get you the best salespeople in the world. Number one is emotional intelligence. And number two is asking great questions. Those two things. If you can master asking great questions And emotional intelligence, you can write your own check. You don't have to, you you can literally write your own checks. You can make any amount of money you want. You can grow your business to any level you want. If you're able to ask great questions and have emotional intelligence. So on a basic uh, sales process, when it comes to buying single family homes, there's, you have to have sort of the same strategy going into each house that you go into. And the only thing that changes is the seller on the other side. Now, there's two two types of sellers in my opinion. I've only met really two. There's emotional and logical. And this, but by the way, everything that I'm talking about also applies to buying commercial real estate, buying larger properties, buying, you know, single families. It's it's an emotional conversation um, that is sometimes backed up and majority of time backed up with logic. People make decisions on emotion and justify it with logic. So you're going to have two types of sellers. You're going to have one that's primarily an emotional seller that is some in in some sort of distress and has some motivation. And then the other one is typically a logic, very, very logical seller that you're going to have to have a, a very logical approach with. And those are the only two times my approach changes is when my seller avatar is either very, very emotional and I have to assume sort of a Dr. Phil role or the seller is very, very logical. And I have to assume sort of a Dave Ramsey role, right? I have to just make it make sense on paper. Like it has to pencil for them. It's got a pencil for me. Um, there's sometimes honestly where I sit down and write the math out with a pencil so that they understand. Um, so number one is getting into a the first part of the sales process is setting some sort of frame or an agenda for the conversation. Right? Too many conversations. Uh, the the front door opens, or we sit down at a table or something, and and just the conversation just sort of goes off to the races, right? And we have no kind of frame for where this conversation is going. So I always like to root the initial meeting is always set with a frame. I do this on all my meetings, like internal, external. Business conversations, negotiations, conversations with my wife. What do we want this agenda to be? What's the, what what is the frame for this agenda for this conversation? What are the acceptable outcomes of this conversation? Like, what do we want? What's the ideal scenario here? Um, and setting that frame. Number two, the second part is your discovery process. So this is where like asking great questions, um, we have different techniques here, like Socratic questions and mirroring. Um, you guys have probably heard of those two things. And I got some notes over here to make sure I, I don't miss anything with you guys. Um, but we have like, you know, Socratic questions and mirroring are two ways that you can sort of dig deeper. Um, I'll, I'll dive in a little bit. Socratic questioning is using their words and then formulating a question so if somebody says like you know this place is kind of a problem for me hey when you say problem you know what do you mean so I'm using their words and it incentivizes them to answer their own question and elaborate more because the second part of the sales process being discovery is like all about asking great questions and then actively listening in order to pull back layers of an onion because a lot of times 90% of the time the first layer is not really going to pull enough motivation for them to actually make a decision, right? That first layer is just the surface. And most people are going to hold their cards close to the chest in the beginning. Most, you know, you have probably, we've all experienced that the 10, 20, 20% of people that, you know, you open the front door and they just throw up all the information on you, right? They give you everything. They just open their, show their cards and they're like, this is my situation. It's been terrible, all this stuff. And they just kind of throw up everything, right? That, that, is, you know, 20% of the time. So 80%, you have to be the one that sort of peels back the layers and you're not going to be able to do that if you don't know how to ask great questions and utilize like mirror tactics, like mirroring, where you can sort of repeat the last three to five words or, um, get them to elaborate and talk more. Um, all of that stuff is designed towards, uh, you know, getting them to open up. Um, and yeah, just making sure I don't miss anything here. So, um, doing those two things then, obviously getting out of discovery, figuring out, you know, why you're in front of them, who you're in front of, is it a logical person is it an emotional person and then getting into sort of the motivation and the reason why you're there is, is a big thing because those are the reasons that they're also going to be making the decision. So um, I need to understand why I'm sitting there, you know, Hey, what made you decide to give us a call? Or, you know, how, how do you, how could we help you? Or how do you see this ideally playing out? Right. Those types of things are going to start to pull back the layers of that, um, that motivation onion. Um, which is really, really important part of the sales process because you know if you don't, you don't necessarily have to have distress. I think a lot of people think that the only way to buy these things at a discount or is like if there's like severe distress, and it's not the case. Like i bought a lot of properties in my career of people that were just had some motivation. You know, they weren't like behind on their mortgage payments or going through a divorce, but they just, you know, they just wanted to get rid of it, or they retired or renting it out, or, you know, they just didn't want to make the repairs. So it doesn't have to be this drastic thing. And a lot of times motivation doesn't necessarily have to be about the property itself. It can be more about the seller in their lives. You know, maybe they want to move down to Florida to be closer to their kids or something along those lines. All that being said, you need to understand what that is. And because it's going to come into play later on in the negotiation. So, Motivation. And then I think after motivation, um, for me, the biggest piece of the puzzle that a lot of people miss um, is proactively handling objections. So, you know, objections can come up after a close and after you try and, you know, maybe give up your leverage. And if those are when you're handling objections, you've already lost, right? So I want to handle the objections before we even negotiate. Before we even start to talk numbers, I want to start to get the objections out of the way, right? Uh, Potential objections like I need to to talk to my spouse or, hey, my sister's a realtor and I know I need to run it by her. Um, Things like, hey, I have you know, four other people coming out after you, like, I want want to collect all the offers, like those types of things should be handled way before you guys are even talking numbers. So most people are getting into this, you know, they're getting into a negotiation. And then they, you know, they, at the end of it, they make an offer or something, and it looks decent. And then they find out that the seller, you know, wants to think about it, because they have four other people coming. I'm like, well, wouldn't you want to know that before you gave up your leverage, because they don't need you anymore. So on, on when it comes to, let me just say this one quote here for on, on handling objections. This came from Chris Voss. The reasons why a counterpart will not make an agreement with you are often far more powerful than why they will make a deal, why they will make a deal. So focus on first clearing out the barriers to an agreement. So barriers to an agreement include timeframe. Are they are they good with the timeframe that? Do you understand what time frame their ideal scenario is? And are, is that good with you? Um, most of the time you should be flexible. I think some people get into a situation where they think that every seller wants this sort of quick, you know. 21 day close or 14 day close when in, in fact, they might want 90 days to try and find a place. And if you come in saying like, Hey, we we'll are do cash quick close. Like they're actually going to be really guarded and they're not going to tell you why they're guarded. And you're not going to know, but really it's because they think that you want to close in two weeks and they want 90 days and they might just discredit your offer completely. And you, and you're fine with closing in 90 days. You just didn't ask the right questions. So time frame. Uh, decision, like other people that are making the decision with with them, like decision influencers, decision makers, there's other people involved that are not present. Um, if you're presenting an offer and, you know, one out of three decision makers are sitting at the table, like don't expect to get an answer. And I wouldn't be presenting your final number. Um, I probably wouldn't be presenting many numbers at all if you're not in front of any of all the people and have the buy-in of all the decision makers. And I think the other thing is people assuming that it's just the people on the deed. You know, there's a husband and wife on the deed, but maybe there's a brother that's like in real estate and he's a huge influencer. And if you don't have his buy-in, his commitment, like you're in a tough spot. So understanding who all those people are. Um, I think decision readiness is another proactively- uh, proactive objection that you need to handle, as far as like you know, what what is their time frame to make a decision? Hey, you know, Mister Seller, if I, if I was able to make you an offer today, I mean, what what is what does that next step look like if we're able to come to an agreement on a number? You know, it all looks good term wise. We're able to figure it out. What is the next step as far as like being able to make a decision and understanding how ready they are to make that specific decision is a huge a huge thing. So. Um, I think those, those are the, and then I would say number four, I'm going to, I'm going to add a bonus one in here is comfortability working with investors. Uh, A lot of people want to shy away from talking about, you know, some of the pitfalls of working with investors. And I think it's at their own detriment because understanding if somebody is comfortable working with an investor or has worked with an investor before understands how an investor works, like getting them comfortable with that process um, you know, that you're dealing with with this person, there's no broker involved, right? You're dealing with me. Um, this is how we work. Uh, getting them super comfortable with that first before a contract comes out is mission critical. Um, I think a lot of reasons people end up not getting contracts signed, especially on the first appointment, is because they're not proactively handling these objections. And they're also not getting uh, somebody super comfortable with dealing with them and what a contract would look like or even the process of working with an investor before they start negotiating so I want to understand like I want if I'm the seller like I want to understand okay if if we did do business you know wh- what does that look like what does the next 30 days look like if we did do business and then we get into the negotiation and pull out a contract and actually talk about the terms of it because you don't want to do that and explain what doing business looks like while the contract is in front of them because they're gonna feel like, well, this is moving really fast. But if I have time to like settle in and, and let the, the way that this process is gonna work sort of sink in, uh, I'm much more incentivized to then sign a contract with you, um, you know, after we get through uh, a couple more stages in the process. Cool. Um, okay. So after we we've we've set a frame, we've done some discovery, we've, we pulled some motivation. We've handled some of the objections that might come up. Everything's starting to look good. Now we need to get into the negotiating side of things. Like this is all that sales process. So now I want to negotiate. Um, now there's a lot of, a lot of ways to negotiate. Um, I'm going to give you some advanced sort of negotiation tactics. And then I want to talk about some of the, uh, the, the ways that it applies to single family. So number one, um, always let them go first. Uh, You know, it it can be brutal. Sometimes you're going to have to sit in silence. Uh, Silence is actually your best friend. Uh, He who speaks first loses. That is absolutely true. Um, Now you don't have to like make it super awkward, (laughs) Um, but being able to sit in silence when you may think it's awkward is actually just it's a real power play. So um, I always try and ask them. You know what what they what they think it's worth. What sort of research they've done? Uh, where they came up with that number? You know, always negotiate. You know, you're going to negotiate from from their perspective and from their numbers. So letting them go first is is huge. um Then don't give. These are all just advanced kind of tactics. Don't give something without getting something in return. Far too many people are making concessions on the negotiation without actually getting something of value in return. A, Meaning, like if I'm going to come up in price, you know, I may want to get uh, a longer due diligence or less earnest money or um, something like that. If I'm going to close faster, I may want, if they want to close in, you know, 14 days, I may want to get a lower price or um, some other terms that, you know, get a lockbox on the property or something like that to, to like get something in return if you're just like if they just say hey you know i can't do 90 but i could do 95 and you're like okay i could do 95 like what's their incentive to you know sign or why wouldn't they just ask you then for 100 because you're just bidding against yourself right so if they say you know i can't do 90 but i can do 95 you could say i'm not sure i can do 95 but i can make a phone call but if i could you know get you get to 95 i mean would we be able to sign you know something today and and make sure we get this thing done so instead of giving them the extra 5k what i've done is i've i've sort of thrown that 5K out there, but I've gotten a commitment in return. So at the very least, at the very, very least, if I'm in a negotiation and I don't want to counter some terms, at the very least, if I'm going to give something, I'm going to get some sort of commitment uh, from them if I'm going to give something up. All right. So don't give anything up without getting something in return. Um, You guys have heard me say this one, but seek first to understand, then to be understood. Uh, Far too many people are going into sales conversations and they're the ones doing all the talking you have got to shut up and listen. Sorry. I'm, I'm not very couth sometimes, but just, just shut up and listen, ask a lot of questions and you should be talking 20% of the time. So, and you have to understand them and understand their position. This is all about tactical empathy. You guys have heard me use that term tactical empathy before. Um, putting yourself in their shoes and understanding their perspective and how they see their specific situation. And if you don't understand how to do that, or you can't do that, you're never going to walk away with signed contracts at a high level. You'll get some deals, but you're not going to get, you're not, you're not going to get the competitive ones. You know, you're not going to get the ones where there's 10 other investors out there and you're the guy who gets the contract, the guy or gal who gets the contract. Um, because you're not like understanding their, perspective, you're just going in trying to be understood like, Hey, this is who we are. This is what we do. And, you know, you're trying to be understood when you need to really first understand and then, you know, actively listen to what they're saying. Um, Don't chase what they say until you understand what they mean. This is one of my favorite ones on negotiating, but far too many people are like chasing uh, what somebody says without really understanding what they mean. And that goes back to those Socratic questions, mirroring and sort of like diving deeper and peeling back the layers of the onion because understanding what somebody means is far more important than just listening basically to what they said. So um, always ask deeper questions. Don't be afraid to ask why. Um, some people you know, that are newer in the sales process, I hear them on calls. I've listened to, I've trained I've trained a lot of salespeople across the country. I've been on thousands of appointments, listened to thousands more. And I, I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is you know, when a, somebody is talking, when a seller is talking, they're just formulating their next question in their mind and they're not actually like hearing the person for what they're saying. And then being able to um, take, take a moment to like really digest what they just said and then formulate a, a follow-up question to what they're saying. So I think that's really big. Uh, actively listening. And then I think the last one on negotiating is just maintaining a high level of self-awareness and emotional control. Um, Being able to manage your disruptive emotions um, in a sales process is the epitome of an elite sales performer because, you know, the seller could say something or they could say, we have other investors coming out or we know we need to think about it. And if you don't have control of your emotions and you don't have the self-discipline um, and the self awareness to maintain that emotional control, like you're going to get all flustered and worried, and then you're going to flip into desperation mode and try and close them hard, and it's going to come off uh, to the seller, like it's going to come off that way. Um, I've seen it, I've seen it hundreds and hundreds of times. You know, you it maybe it's your only appointment that week, and you really need the contract, and you really really want it, and they say something that incent, that it kind of insinuates that they're not going to be signing, and you immediately just throw away your entire process and just try and push hard for a close. And, uh, because you quote unquote need the deal and they feel that they, they can feel it, whether you say it or not, you know, it, it's, 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 it's an intangible, uh, that they can feel. And I'm telling you, it's super, uh, repulsive from a seller standpoint. Like they, if they smell desperation, like they're going to push you away so quick. Um, you need to be a reluctant, reluctant buyer, um, act like you have a bag of money and you, you know, you don't really want to give it to them, but you might, if they can, you know, convince you to, um, I know in today's competitive market, it can be difficult to do that, but maintaining, uh, this process that we just talked about is, um, it's going to be your key to buying deals in all market cycles. So, and we can talk about that sort of at the Q and A, if you guys have some questions. Um, so that was on negotiating. I think those are some, some, some tips um i have two i have some more on negotiating and then we're going to go into a close and owner finance if you guys are getting something if you've gotten at least one little snippet that you like out of this drop a seven in the chat let me know you that you're still here still paying attention If you've gotten a good little couple little snippets that you're going to take back to yourself or your sales team i'd love to see a seven there are some sevens good i hope you guys are enjoying this let's keep going so on the negotiating side One of the things that we really like to do is called anchoring. Um, I do it in commercial real estate, single family real estate. I do it with my wife. I do it in business conversations. But anchoring somebody is the art of uh, locking them in at a certain place in order to make the desired location look better. Anchoring is locking somebody in mentally at a number or a place that makes the desired outcome, your desired outcome look much more appealing. So the way that it looks is if I'm going to offer, you know, $100,000 for a house, um, I may say, hey, have you, you know, I, I saw an investor bought one down the street for $65,000. You know, it was a real fixer upper, but they paid sixty-five dollars for it. So that 65 is an anchor. As long as I throw that number out, it's called a price anchor. And then my when I when when they say, oh, I would never sell for 65. Yeah, no, I know, I know. It's just you know an investor bought one for 65 down there. So I was just I didn't know if you had seen that or knew what investors were paying for in the area, um, because I want to talk about the prices that are lower, so that they get anchored in their mind. They just heard 65. It's a it's a it's a subconscious thing. So now when you start talking about your offer, if your MAO is 100 or your max allowable offer is 100 and you're talking in the 80s, 90s, right, it sounds a lot better than what you threw out originally at 65, even though that 65 was not even an offer. Does that make sense? Far too many people are talking about the ARVs when they go out to these houses and they're talking about because of the nature of the market, right, they're talking about, hey, do you have any idea what houses are selling for in your area, right? That's sort of a question that that's salespeople are told to ask. That's a terrible question right because what it does is it, it it makes them go and grab all of the like the renovated comps and say well you know that these these renovated homes are selling for you know 350,000 and you're about to offer 125 well now you're now you've gone from talking about 350,000 dollar houses aka anchored high and now you're going to try and talk about your offer at 125 you're going to look like a buffoon but if i'm talking about all the investors that are buying them for 100 and I'm going to pay 125. Now it's a much better conversation. So understanding how to, how to utilize anchors and how to throw them out in different ways. Um, let me just, i want to make sure I have some, uh, I want to see if I have any other price anchor uh, words and phrases to help with you guys. Uh, yeah, that's, that's really it. Hey, you know, um, what would you say if I was able to offer, you know, X is a, is a good way to throw out a, a price. Um do you have any idea what investors are paying for properties in the area, right? Because I want to start to talk about the investor level uh, comps. Um, The other thing on negotiating is pre-closing. So getting a pre-close is going to allow you to protect your leverage. I think in specifically in single family real estate, leverage uh, is the one thing that's given up way too early by way too many people, way too often, they're giving up their leverage. Um, and, And by leverage, I mean their number. Because in today's market, right, your your number is your leverage. And uh, how do I want to say this? You know, these these I buyers and all this stuff, they're like a dime a dozen. And that's how some people look at it. Now, what I'm seeing as far as like where the world has shifted and the cheese has moved, because in real estate, especially in this space, like the cheese is constantly moving. So what I found that is like we went through this like pandemic where, you know, nobody was going into houses or doing anything. And then um, we've come out of it. And I feel like people are craving that sort of white glove approach. Like people are craving that belly to belly sales process. Again, they're they're wanting it because we went like, I, I saw so many people transition their business to virtual Um, In 2020, and even, you know, in the last year, and, you know, buying across the country and wholesaling nationally and doing like all these things and buying in virtual markets. And it's, I get it, it's doable, possible, you know, really cool. Uh, But, you know, my opinion of wholesaling real estate is the way to buy properties at deep discounts really solve people's problems and, and build a flourishing business, in my opinion, is still belly to belly. And I'm seeing that the market is responding to that white glove service. A lot of these older folks that are selling their homes, um, they they want somebody in there that they can see, that they know, they like, they trust. Uh, it's very difficult to do that over the phone. It's very possible. I see close rates go from 25 to 33 percent of in person for appointments booked down to about 10 to 12 percent uh, over the phone. So you're talking about you know less than half as many deals. Um, closable deals that you can get over the phone versus, you know, showing up in person. So now, obviously it depends on your market and all this. So there's a lot of other factors to that. But what I'm saying is uh, they are craving, sellers are craving that white glove in-person approach once again. Um, And when you do go in person, this sales process is critically important. Protecting your leverage. Um, Once you give it up, they have no need for you anymore. So I want to do all those other things. Before that, I just mentioned, you know, in this call, I want to do all those other things before we discuss numbers. Um, and I want to figure out who else is involved, all that good stuff. Uh, the last thing to the, the last piece of the puzzle. So that was frame, discovery, motivation, proactively handling objections, negotiating. All right. Those are those things. And then this is the close. Okay. So the close should be seamless if you've done all of the other pieces of this puzzle right this should not be like some hard close you know sign now or this offer leaves with me i mean that's that is a hard close but it shouldn't have to be that every way like if you've done your job right um and taking them through taking them through a process this should be this part of the process should be seamless and the biggest mistake i see people make is they're not getting comfortable getting the seller comfortable with what is gonna happen after a contract is signed, before a contract is brought out. And when the contract is brought out, they want to talk about it, they want to think about it, they want to get it to their attorney. They want to do all this stuff because you didn't tell them what was going to happen. So I'm gonna role play it with you guys for just real quick. Um I'm gonna role play it with you guys. So it sounds something like this. Um hey, you know, would you mind you know it sounds like we're You know, pretty close on on price. Um, It sounds like, you know, your timeline lines up with where we could buy and I know it's just your decision to make. So would you mind if I talked about, you know, what an agreement looks like uh, first and what the next 30 days would look like if we did, you know, iron out a, a price here. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, so this is, this is our, our process. You know, once we put something uh, under an, under, under an agreement like this, you know, we typically take a, a week or two just to cross our T's and dot our I's. I'm going to bring my partners out here. Uh, we try and bother you as little as possible, but we may have a, a couple of times that we need to get ourselves and our partners, maybe a contractor or two out here as well. Um, just to get eyes on eyeballs on the property. We just want to make sure that we you know can guarantee that we get this thing closed for you. So that's what the first two weeks look like and then those next two weeks after that are pretty much smooth sailing you'll get contacted by the, tri- the title company uh, to get the payoff from the property and they'll also coordinate getting into the closing um, and scheduling you to close on the closing date you know we're going to wire that money into the title company it'll sit in an escrow account until you sign all the closing documents and then once you do that uh, they can either release the money to you via cashier's check or they can wire it right to your bank account and you'll have it on that same day does that all sound good right I'm gonna. So that was before I even brought an agreement out. So now they're like, okay, that all sounds good. So then when I bring the agreement out, all it's doing is just explaining what I just said, and it's not like this foreign document that they now have to decipher in their mind. Um, you know, a lot of these people are not lawyers; they're not attorneys, and that you don't want them to think that they need a lawyer, or an attorney. Cool. Um, and I think the other mistake people make is not setting the correct expectations. Um, If they don't, if you don't set the the correct expectations for what's going to take place, uh, that's when I've seen a lot of deal go deals go awry is after you get it signed and maybe you sign and you leave and you don't set the expectations of what's going to take place. Now, what has happened is in their mind, the next 30 days, let's call it a 30 day close. The next 30 days in their minds looks different than what you're actually planning on doing. And it creates this disruption and now it creates a pissed off seller. So they're thinking, they heard the term inspection and they're thinking, you know, one guy with a clipboard and a tape measure coming out and you think showing to dispositions and you think buyers coming in and you show up with 10 people and it looks like a freaking carnival outside their front door and they're thinking one inspector, right? That's going to piss them off. So those types of things and setting the the framework and the expectation so that everyone is on the same page when you leave, Um, making sure they understand that the next two weeks are for you to really iron out the details and the numbers and making sure that they don't think that, you know, the second they sign that document, it's a done deal. The other thing that I do too, is when they sign, you know, I let them know that, Hey, you know, this is a binding contract. I know it's a one page agreement, but this is a binding agreement. You know, you cannot sell it to anybody else. If somebody comes in tomorrow and offers you a thousand dollars more, I want you to let you know, you you cannot sell it to them. Um, You know, and I, I say that in my in my appointments. Um, some people just think you know signing a piece of paper doesn't mean anything nowadays, and it does. So understanding that that is a uh, setting expectations. So those are that that is a basic sales process. Now after you do that and you do go for a close and something happens and they do need to think it over. Maybe you have a really call them intelligent seller who just wants to, wants to get a number out of you. And they'll say yes throughout the whole process. Yes. I'm the decision maker. Yes. I'm ready to make a decision. Yes. That time frame lines up. Yes, 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 Because they just want to get, get a number out of you. And then once they get a number out of you, it's the whole like, all right, well, I need to think about it. Those types that's going to happen. It's part of this business. Um, understanding how to, how to deal with a think it over. Um, let me just give you guys a couple of like lines that I, I like to use when, when somebody maybe gives me that one. Um, you know, hey, I need to think about it. Yeah, listen, I completely understand. After having this rental for ten years, and you know, it's been cash flowing for you for a while, I, I completely understand. You know, wanting to be able to think it over. Um, I guess my question would be, you know, what what about doing business today has you can cons- What about doing business with me today has you concerned? Um, that one question right there has really opened up a lot because, you know, when you say when when somebody says they need to think about it, like thinking is an instantaneous thing. Like, I need to think about. Okay, I just thought about it. So what has you concerned because there's something other than just needing to go to bed and just ponder right what there's some concern that that you have not uncovered so what has what about doing business with me today has you concerned and a lot of times asking that additional question remember this whole thing is about asking questions asking that additional question will actually help you uncover what may be holding them back well you know i actually did promise you know my tenant that i was going to let them you know try and buy it okay well you know, have have you talked to have you had that conversation with them? No, I haven't had that conversation with them, but I'm going to talk to them this week. Okay, well, listen, I'm going to be back out in the area Friday after you talk to the tenant. You mind if I swing back by and we can, um, you know, and then we can, you know, reconvene and see if this is the right fit. Uh, let me see if I have any other ones. Yeah, Jeff, that would that's a that's a really good one. What about doing business with me today? As you concerned, um, uh, there's there's obviously the the whole. You know, I completely understand. I have more houses to look at. Uh, talk track where you know you let them know I got some other properties I'm going to look at. I don't know if I say yes to this one, I might say no to the other ones. If I say no to this one, I might be able to say yes to the other ones. So unfortunately, I can't just leave an open-ended agreement like this, and that's completely fine. You know, again, giving the autonomy, giving them the autonomy to say no is really critical. So, hey, a no is completely fine. Um, you know, are, are you okay with me just you know taking my offer off the table for now? Um, you know, if we're not able to make something work right now, and being able, being willing to walk away um i think is a really powerful tool that not many people are doing being able to walk away because um and and the reason people aren't willing to walk away from negotiations is not because uh it let me tell you it is because directly related to their pipeline not being full enough if your pipeline is not full you're not going to you're not going to negotiate the right way because you're going to be trying to grasp at these one-two deals that are being loaded into your pipeline. Whereas if my pipeline is overflowing with opportunities, I'm going to be very willing to pull, you know, my offer off the table and walk away from a deal. It's all about your pipeline. Yeah, Julie. It's all about your deal flow. You guys understand. At the top of the funnel is leads in, appointments set, appointments conducted. I call it appointments held, right? Um, you got leads in, appointments set, appointments conducted. Offers made, contract signed. Those are my five KPIs for sales of what I care about. Right? How many leads does it take to get me a, an appointment? How many sellers do I have to sit in front of to make how many offers? How many offers do I need to make to get how many contracts? And then it just all uh, goes. It just all goes from there. Let me see if I have anything else for you guys. So pitfall. Let me just touch on pitfalls, and I'll touch on seller fi- owner finance, and then we can do some Q and A. So some pitfalls that I typically see is not setting or sticking to that agenda that we talked about. They just open the front door and just start walking around the house and taking pictures. And the the, the reason that's a problem is because now the person who has opened the door for you or that seller has no idea what is going on. And now when you want to negotiate or you want to like get a number out of them and you're, you know, you're 10 minutes into walking through the house and you're starting to ask them questions about numbers, they're like taken back because they're like, they've formulated their own opinion of what's about to happen. They've come up with their own, they've come up with their own uh, agenda in their mind. If you don't set it now, they've come up with their own about, well, I guess they're just going to walk through, take pictures and then call me later with an offer or send me an offer via email. Maybe that's what they assume is going to happen. And if you don't tell them otherwise, then that's what they think is going to happen. So then when you try and negotiate or you want to get a closed deal and they're you know abrasive to talking numbers, right? That's your fault. It's yours. <laughs> so not setting that agenda up front, um, not understanding the seller avatar. Um, If you're talking super logical to an emotional person, or if you're talking super emotional to a logical person, uh, you're just, you're going to pass them like, like two ships in the night. I think an emotional seller, like you just, if you're trying to talk emotionally to a logical seller, like, and the person's just very numbers driven, it's a rental property. It's just like, it's a strictly a numbers decision. They're not emotionally tied to the property. It's been a rental for them. Um, and you're trying to like get them to feel all this emotion about the house, right? You're gonna, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. You know, you need to have a very, excuse me, numbers-driven conversation um, or logical conversation. What are they planning on doing with the money? Um, what other alternative investments do they have to get similar cash flow and return on investment, i.e. owner financing, right? Um, those, those types of questions uh, are, that's what you ask to a logical seller. On the emotional side, Hey, what does this property mean to you? Or, hey, is getting rid of this thing not? You don't say getting rid of this thing, but hey, is letting this property go is going to be pretty emotional for you. Where do you plan on going? What does that look like? What does your life look like after this is all said and done? After this is over, after you're done dealing with these issues that you're having to deal with in this property, how's that going to feel? Those kinds of questions are what you ask an emotional seller. So, one of the biggest pitfalls people make is not being able to switch their hats. Right, so I got my logical seller, and then I'd be able to switch my hat to my emotional seller. Like you got to be able to switch hats, but the process stays the same. So keeping within the same framework, but being able to flip your, um, let's call it what I want to call it, uh, like your feng shui or your uh, your your rhetoric and how you kind of pitch things and your tonality. That's what I was looking for, like your tonality of how you're talking. Right, um, being able to flip those. So the other pitfalls they make is giving up leverage too early. Um, we talked about that for a while. Desperation. Um, they can smell it. They can feel it. It's, it's not good. Don't do it. You, you need to be a reluctant buyer. Um, oh, this is a good one. One of the pitfalls on the sales side is wanting to be liked. Now, i said earlier, people do business with people they know, like, and trust. But wanting to be liked will get in the way of you doing a lot of deals when you're more concerned with them liking you than you are with closing the deal. And that is one of the biggest things that I think salespeople struggle to get over is they wanna leave that house and be liked um, when being liked doesn't matter because it doesn't translate to revenue. Now, being likable is different. You can be firm and be likable, but being concerned about being liked is a pitfall i gonna let that one stew for a minute. You can be firm and be aggressive and still be likable, but being concerned with being liked is a massive pitfall. So think about that. Um, when first in your mind, uh, I would say, you know, when I was buying houses at a very, very high level, um, I would pull up to the house and in my mind, I would say that's mine. Like, I, I would say I'm not leaving without a contract. Like when I was sitting in the car in the driveway about to walk up, I'm not leaving this place without a contract. Like that's how I thought about everyone. And then if I ended up leaving it, like I would have a very short memory. Um, my, my thing was like, I would always, my I had a push start car and I would say like, the second I push this button, I'm gonna forget about everything that just happened. Not forget about it, but you know what? I'm gonna learn my lessons, but I'm also gonna, I'm just gonna reset. Like I'm gonna reset my emotions. So um, being able to like move from appointment to appointment, And not carrying any emotional baggage that you might be bringing from potentially a lost, you know, not getting a contract signed and carrying it to the next one. Um, And then also winning in your mind first. Uh, The other two big pitfalls that people are making is not watching game film, aka not recording their appointments. Um, If you're not recording your appointments or you're not, your salespeople are not recording their appointments and not watching and listening to their own appointments. um, Huge pitfall. Uh, Tom Brady does not go to the Super Bowl without watching game film, and that guy has been playing for 44 years, and he's won seven Super Bowls. You know why? Because he watches a lot of game film. Uh, it, it's going to be awkward in the beginning listening to yourself talk. Um, It's going to be awkward in the beginning, but I promise you, you know, watching your own sales calls, listening to your salespeople's sales calls, and then training and doing role playing, um, and not you know not setting aside time for training, role playing, and listening to call breakdowns is probably one of the reasons a lot of salespeople are not making it in this racket. And there's a lot of attrition. Um, there's a lot of attrition. What do, what else do we got? So what time is it? 10 46. I got 14 minutes. I'm going to do four minutes of owner financing, and then I'm going to do 10 minutes of Q and a, and I do see these questions coming in. I will make sure that I, I get to them all. Um, if you guys start to have questions, go ahead and drop them in the chat. Um, I'm going to talk about the four types of owner financing, um, that you're going to run into, but first I want to talk about how you pitch owner financing and seller financing. Now, the main the main way that you're going to do owner the, let, let me do the four types first. Right? There's long term. There's a long term strategy if there's a mortgage in place uh, called subject to. There's a short term strategy if a mortgage in place. is called subject to for a flip. This one's called subject to for a rental, uh, meaning you're going to take over the existing mortgage or the existing note, potentially paying the seller something down on top of that. And then assume the payments on that note. Um, on the sh- on the long term one, what you're going to do is get a get a tenant in there. You're going to either wholesale it to a buyer or you're going to take it down, get a tenant in there, and that that rent payment is going to cover the note on the that the you've then assumed, and then cash flow on top of the expenses. And then on the short term side of things, typically a subject two is done. Um, in order to not have to outlay all the capital to close, you can make the payments on behalf of the seller until you can renovate the property and then sell it, pay off the note, and then potentially anything else you've agreed upon uh, with that seller. And then, uh, so there's those two with mortgages in place. And then when the property is owned free and clear, there's long-term and short-term there as well. So when there's, you know, free and clear, and the owner has a ton of equity, leveraging that equity in order to buy the property um, for the long-term, meaning, you know, maybe it was a, it was a rental forum and they're getting old, uh, but they don't have any plans with the money. They're going to pay a bunch of capital gains tax uh, when they sell it. And, um, you know, it's just going to sit in a bank account and get eaten away by, you know, the 20% inflation that's actually going on right now. But if they keep the, if they hold the note on the property, maybe you're able to pay them four or five, 6%, at least help them sort of outrun some of this inflation. And then you can rent, uh, rent it out for above what that note payment is and buy it for literally nothing out of pocket. Maybe you put 10 or 20K down to give the seller a little bit of something. Um, that's long-term strategy. And then short-term strategy is maybe when the owner wants close to market value, um, and it doesn't make sense for you to put, let's call it $200,000 out down at closing and then put 50K into it and sell it for 300 because the costs just don't make sense. But if you could put 50K into it, sell it for 300 and then pay the owner 200 at the back end, um, you know, after you finish renovating it in six, nine, 12 months, now that makes a lot more sense because your capital out is only 50,000. So if you're making 20 grand, you know, a 20% return on 50,000 is way better than, I mean, a 20,000 dollar return on 50K invested is way better than a twenty thousand dollar return on 250 thousand dollars invested so those are the four types all in all you have to understand the seller so very very well because it takes a lot of trust to do those deals i've done all, i've done all four types many many times and um, it, it just it does take a lot of trust um, especially the subject too because you have to understand that their liability is you not paying their mortgage and them getting foreclosed on so if they don't trust the heck out of you it's not going to happen And everything that I said earlier in this presentation is directly related to them being able to trust you, uh, in order to do a deal like that. Um, and then lead with the benefits. So on something like, you know, a free and clear property where you want to get owner financing and the guy doesn't have anything, any plans to, with the money or the guy or gal, you know, understanding that, you know, Hey, some, a strategy that we've done before, Mr. Seller is, you know, we're able to, uh, help you avoid, you know, some of the capital gains tax that's going to be along, uh, along with selling, as well as having to identify another asset to get a good return on your investment. Um, a lot of those stressors, uh, you know, people struggle with when we come out to buy these properties, and we're able to solve them with sort of a creative offer um, that has some terms involved. It also allows you to get a good return on your capital while still being secured with real estate, but not having to deal with the property, the tenants, uh, all the deal, all the things that you know you really don't like dealing with, which is the whole reason we're out here. If I was able to put an offer together that made that make sense, I mean, was that something you would want to consider, right? Do you see how I led with the benefits rather than just saying, are you open to owner financing? Too many people are like, hey, are you open to owner financing? And and they're just immediately getting like stonewalled. Like, no, I don't want owner financing. Well, you're not even leading with the benefits and, and, and they're taking their definition of owner financing, which is I still have to be locked into this property. And they're not looking at the benefits of, you know, the whole situation because you, didn't explain to them the benefits, you just leveraged, like you just let them have their own definition of owner financing, right? Does that make sense? So lead with the benefits first, even when it comes to taking property subject to, um, Hey, you know, we're able to pay a little bit more money. Um, if I might be able to just make the mortgage payments on your behalf. And then once the property is renovated and sold, you know, then I could be able to pay you out a little bit on top of this mortgage versus being able to not, not cover it on a cash offer. Is that something you'd you'd be interested in talking more about? Um, you know, those, those types of things. So I got 10 minutes. Let's do some Q and a, I hope, I hope that was decent. Can you guys drop a, drop a nine? I'm going to do, I'm going to do QA. and a, drop a nine in the chat. If you guys got some, some decent snippets out of that session. That's great. Cool. 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 Um, let me go up and answer some questions here while the nines are coming in. I hope that was good. Um, Hope that was good. I've been doing this for a long time, everybody. I started at selling copiers at Xerox door to door out of college. Um, they did some phenomenal sales training, and obviously, knocking on doors and office buildings um, will kind of build some thick skin. So that's where I got my first start in sales, and then got into you know buying properties directly from seller sellers. I was doing um, I was doing a lot of acquisitions at a high level, and now I buy a lot of bigger stuff um, very similar conversations though. I'm just buying like larger commercial properties. Um, and I still do, I still have a single family business and still do some coaching and have some single family, uh, companies that are, that are out there buying houses. So I've been doing this for a, a while. Um, and what's funny is, you know, as the cheese moves in the real estate space, the process is stays the same. Um, you know, the, the, the cheese moves and you have to adapt and you have to call audibles but the very base level of like what it's going to take to be successful from a sales standpoint has is not, is not changed. Those, those, these methods that I'm telling you are tried and true in all different market cycles. Um, and it's just basic sales, you know, and negotiating 101. Um, let me answer some questions. If you guys got them, drop them in seven minutes. I'm going to do speed round questions. What happens when you cannot disposition a property? Christina, good question. When you cannot sell a property, um, you need to be super transparent with the seller upfront. Now, if I know that a property is not looking like it's going to move, I want to proactively handle that with the seller and talk about a potential price reduction, uh, early on in the due diligence process. Too many people are waiting till that last day of due diligence to come and hit the seller with like, Hey, you know, we need this for a lower price or, Hey, this thing isn't working out. And it just pisses people off. Now, if you come right out of the gate and say, Hey, Mr. Seller, you know, uh, I, I will tell you the, The feedback that I've got from my team has not been super great. I just wanted to come right out of the gate and kind of tell you um, it's looking like the repairs are a little bit higher than what we thought. Um, I just wanted to have this conversation. We don't have a new number for you yet, but it does look like we might be able to have to get this thing a little bit uh, for a little bit less than what we are under contract for. And I'm not sure what that is, but I just wanted to be open and transparent with you. So that's a conversation that you kind of have on the front end. If you think it's going to be a little tougher to move. And then obviously, you know, if you can't dispose property, just come clean, fall on your sword, Uh, take responsibility, take ownership. Don't try and blame others. Um, If you can't dispose property, um, then you can't dispose property. You can't fit a square peg into a round hole. How do you determine what kind of seller they are? Um, Sherry, great question. Uh, That's done through the discovery process. After you answer some discovery, start to answer some discovery questions. You know, when you're five, six questions in, like you should start to develop Uh, an idea of what kind of person they are. Like I'm asking them about their occupation. I'm asking them a little bit about their family life, you know, where they're from, who they are, like those types of questions should help identify, um, you know, especially when you start to ask questions that are along the motivation guidelines, like as far as like, you know, Hey, what made you decide to give us a call or how can we help? Or, you know, what, what kind of situation are we, are we looking to solve here? What's the ideal scenario come for you? Like those types of questions are really by their language and their response is going to tell you whether or not you have an emotional or logical seller. Uh, I'm in several Facebook groups. Uh, that one question is not for me. How do I record my own appointments? Edmund, good question. We have a bracelet um, that I will have somebody put in the chat um, that looks like a Fitbit. And that Fitbit is a recording device and you plug it into your computer. So you can do it on your phone, your iPad, um, they have voice memos. Um, th- there's no excuse not to be able to record something. We have so many so much technology around. Um, but if you want to be discreet and also get great audio, there's an Amazon it's like 39 bucks, looks like a Fitbit. and uh, you just put it on your salespeople's wrists and they flip it just flip the switch when they go into an, uh, an appointment and then they just record, uh, download it uh, at the end and then you listen to it. Cool. CNC nines. drop some questions in here. How do you determine what kind of seller they are? Answered that one. Uh, here's a link to the REI Facebook group. What do you put down in worst case to get... What do you put down to worst case get it back if deals falls through? What do you put down to worst case get it back if deals falls through? You have to ask that question again. I don't really understand it. What do you put down to worst case get it back if deals falls through? I mean, if deal if the deal falls through, um, like with you under contract, uh, uh, odds are it's going to be difficult. Oh, earnest money. Um, I mean, I'm putting as little earnest money down as possible, but I have put up $5,000 know, of earnest money if I knew the deal was great, non-refundable. Um, but I'm, I typically put $100 down, $500 down on earnest money. Um, and it's typically refundable for a couple of weeks um, it's, it's typically refundable for that, that week of due diligence. But if the deal falls through, like some of these sellers, like I've had, you know, three wholesalers put it under contract and I'm getting dragged through the mud and I don't want to waste any more time. I want hard earnest money. Like then it just comes down to how comfortable are you with that property and how much, how much they want. It's just negotiating, right? Hey, they want 200. Well, and they want 5,000 down. Well, if I'm going to put 5,000 down, I really would like to get it for 190. Right. You know, those kinds of things. Um, I think, is this my watch? They just dropped it in the chat. No, that's, yeah, that, that one will work. That one does look like a little Fitbit. Um, I'll drop another one too. That is a good, that's a good one. Um, yeah, Uh, I got three minutes left, so I'll just hang out until, uh, my three minutes is up. And if there's any other Q and A's and I will drop my, I will drop my wrist recorder, uh, in the chat questions, comments. If you guys liked it, didn't like it, I'm open to feedback. Um, If you think I'm completely full of it, please let me know. Uh, If you guys enjoyed it, please say goodbye. Thank you, Rico. (laughs) Thank you guys for hopping on with me. Um, I hope you guys have a killer day. I highly recommend getting good at sales, um, understanding basic negotiations. Uh, You guys have to understand this stuff in order to be uh, successful. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Have a great day. Keep rocking. Love all you guys. Take it easy.